You're listening to East Bay Yesterday, the podcast that looks back at stories from Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, and other towns throughout Alameda and Contra Costa County. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. So when I talk to kids, I was like, we talk about, um, are there grizzly bears in Oakland anymore? They're like, no. And I'm like, well, when my ancestors lived here thousands of years ago, there were grizzly bears. And they were some of the hugest bears in the world, right? That's the voice of Karina Gould. She's a loney, which means that her ancestors were living in the Bay Area at a time when woolly mammoths still walked the earth. My name's Karina Gould. I'm part of the Confederated Villages of Shan. Although woolly mammoths didn't live in the bay, their territory was much farther north, giant grizzly bears were abundant here. They prowled redwood forests with trees the size of skyscrapers and feasted on salmon that clogged the creeks running up and down the hills. When Karina is teaching school kids about local indigenous people, she uses grizzly bears to raise a good question. How would you live with a grizzly bear in your world today? And most kids are laughing and they're like, I'd blow it up, I'd feed it, I'd different kinds of things, uh, or call the police on it, something, right? Most of us never have to worry about stumbling across a grizzly. But I love this question. It really makes you think, wait a second, how did people survive living side by side with grizzly bears and packs of wild coyotes and mountain lions for thousands of years? At one time in the Bay Area, there was enough food and enough land for everybody. So nothing and no one ever went hungry. At some point, our ancestors realized that there were particular places that grizzly bears liked to be. There were particular streams they liked to fish in and berries that they liked to pick and places that they liked to raise their children. My ancestors said, then that area is for the grizzly bears and we'll leave them alone and we'll be over here because we have plenty here. And it doesn't mean that my ancestors were never killed by grizzly bears or never had to kill them. But at some point for thousands of years, they lived next to each other without having to demolish one another. Almost everything we know about Bay Area history only covers the past 300 years or so. That's a tiny fraction of the time that people have lived here. The very first humans in this region might have arrived before the bay itself even existed, back when it was just a river valley. There are lots of reasons why relatively little is known about the history of Native people around here. Over the past 40 years or so, there's been kind of a resurgence, though. Local Native languages that were on the brink of extinction are being spoken again. That goes for Ohlone crafts, like basket weaving, too. Tribes that were considered gone forever are coming back. A big catalyst of this revitalization has been a series of battles to protect sacred sites. One of these battles is happening right 
now. A developer wants to put apartments on top of a spot known as the West Berkeley Shell Mound. This shell mound marked the earliest known site inhabited by humans in the Bay Area. It's estimated to be well over 5,000 years old, making it even older than the pyramids in Egypt. Karina Gould recently spoke at a zoning board meeting about the proposal to put a building on this site. Members of the public are allowed to talk for two minutes each at these hearings. The beeping sound you're about to hear at the beginning of this clip means that Karina's two minutes were up. The man's voice you're about to hear is the board's chairperson, and the woman's voice is one of the other council members. We actually felt very differently about this particular site, that this was not just a site that was the Shell Mount, but it was a village site that also encompassed an entire landscape. I know that you got my time is up. Um, but I wanted to clear that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you. Unfortunately, unlike the city council, um, there is no ability to extend, to yield time. But but we're going to ask some questions of the speaker. We understand, and that's why we're going to ask some questions. If, if I ask a question, she gets unlimited time, right? Yes. Can you tell us more about the history of the Ohlone people? <laughs> Thank you, Shoshana. Uh, yes. So. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to say is... In case you couldn't tell from the cheering crowd, a lot of people want to hear about Ohlone history. The Bay Area is known for being a mecca of new technologies and racing towards the future. But there's a lot we can learn from the past, too. Like, for example, how a relatively peaceful and stable culture survived here for thousands of years in harmony with nature. That seems pretty relevant, right? So that's what we're going to be exploring today. How Ohlone people are reclaiming a history that was almost extinguished, and why this history is still so significant. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue. My ancestors were enslaved both at Mission San Jose and Mission Dolores in San Francisco. And Mission San Jose is in Fremont. And so we were uh, colonized by the Spanish first and the Catholic Church. And that was for a little under 100 years. And then we were supposed to, under the Mexican government, be able to get our own land back, or at least some of it. That didn't happen. Mexican-American War happened. Mexico lost. They signed a Treaty of Guadalupe de Hidalgo. And America was also supposed to give us some of our land back, and that didn't happen. The only thing that a lot of people know about Ohlone history is that there were quote-unquote Indians here. Then colonization happened, and then the Indians just sort of disappeared. California schools generally don't teach much about this. That's one of the reasons why this history isn't well known. Here's another reason. What really happened here contradicts the story that Californians like to tell ourselves. 
This is the golden state, the land of dreams and opportunities, fantasies and futurism. A lot of people have come here looking for a fresh start, a blank slate. But none of this would have been possible if the people who lived here before us weren't wiped off the map. The California dream is rooted in genocide. The state of California um, was really not interested in doing treaties with Native Americans. They decided what they were going to do was actually just exterminate. And so they spent $1.7 million paying for the heads of women and men, uh, $5 a head, 25 cents a head for a kid. Under California's first governor, the state paid dozens of militias to hunt down and kill Native people. And those that weren't murdered were often enslaved. Even though slavery was technically illegal in California, Karina explains the loophole that made it possible. It was against the law for Indian to say anything against a white man. So if they said, well, this guy is vagrant and I could actually use him on my ranch, uh, the judge would say, okay, as long as you clothe them and feed them, you can have them for the next 40 years. The law that took away Native people's rights including the right to testify in court, it was called the Act for the Government and Protection of Indians. There may have been up to a million people living in California before Spanish colonization started in the late 1700s. The Bay Area had one of the densest populations of Native people in what is now known as the United States of America. Dozens of villages existed, between the Carquinez Strait and the Monterey Bay. Within a few years of the 1849 gold rush, they were nearly all gone. Folks actually went into hiding a lot. So the way that my ancestors actually survived that whole process was they actually pretended that they were Mexican, lived on a ranch in Pleasanton until it was safe for us to come out. My great-grandfather, Jose Guzman, was a Delta Yokut. He married my great-grandmother, who was uh, also Plains Miwok and Bay Miwok and Ohlone. So we have... Um, Farther back in our lineage, we're also Napian. So we actually are inclusive of all five of the different tribes that was pulled into the um, missions that are closest to us. The Spanish missionaries who shattered the native culture were very organized about the way that they did it. That's why Karina is able to trace her ancestry so far back. The Catholic Church actually did this spectacular job at keeping records of who they took from which, which village sites and which mission they went to, when they were baptized, who they married, who died. The traditional view of this era says that missionaries came here to civilize the Indians and save their souls. This is what a lot of people and history books still say. Karina tells a different story. The Spanish didn't create these missions themselves. They enslaved the native people from the surrounding areas and forced them to build it once they were baptized. Um, and so these became fortresses of where people stayed afterwards. They were jails. It was like, what I like to say is the, you know, first um, wave of industrial prison complex right here is the, is the prison systems that was created for the indigenous people in California.
our territory actually goes out to Byron, which is in the Delta area, goes up to Napa and Sonoma area, goes, um, you know, so all of the Bay area here on the East Bay side. So my ancestors aren't actually from San Francisco at all. They're always on this side of the area of the area. So on um, the East Bay, on the East Bay side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When Karina says our territory, what that means is kind of complicated. I'll let her explain. One of the things that they talk about, too, is that Ohlone people are all one people. And I think that's a myth that we should talk about. The Costanoans was the first name that was given to us by the Spanish people from the coast. And during the 1960s, the um, many of the Ohlone people were beginning to have this kind of like it was like a resurgence of coming out and saying, it's okay for us to be Indian again. Let's remind people that Ohlone are here, but it's Ohlone that's the name that they chose to take. And Ohlone actually comes from a village site in the Southern Territory of uh, Ohlone Territory, from the word Ohlone. So Ohlone people actually come from all the way up by the car, uh, on the Carquinas Strait on both sides, all the way down to Monterey and out to Highway 5. Huge territory. But there was eight different groups of us. We had eight different languages, eight different creation stories. Our songs and dances are different. Northern people dance more like Pomo and Miwok. Southern people dance more like Chumash people. So there's all of these differences, and rather than shoving us all together, that that folks really need to realize in the Bay Area that people are actually tied to a particular area um, if they're alone. When somebody says, who are you? Or where are you from? There are a lot of different ways to answer. For example, I might say, I'm an Oaklander, or I'm a Californian. If I'm in a foreign country, I might say, I'm an American. If the question is about my heritage, I would say, I'm Irish and German. Okay, you get it. And I'm bringing this up to help explain why Karina might sometimes say she's LaShawn, for example, or why it would be accurate to call most of Oakland Huchin land or Ohlone land. Huchin is a territory. So um, say like it was a group like the LaShawn were in charge of the Huchin territory. That would encompass almost all of Oakland, Alameda, Berkeley, um, Albany and El Cerrito. So a huge area. Did I say Emeryville? Emeryville, Albany, not El Cerrito. So there's this huge territory. So Huchin is all of that. Another reason for some of the confusion is that there are different organizations representing different groups of Ohlone people. These organizations are often on opposing sides of controversial issues, like putting buildings on top of sacred sites. The point is that there's no single unified tribal government representing Ohlone people. There was over 567 different federally recognized tribes. None of the Ohlone people are federally recognized, as is most of the California Indians that live on the coast of California never receive the federal recognition status. This is a big problem for the Ohlone community, because without recognition, Tribes don't get any of the rights or benefits or protections that quote-unquote official Indian tribes are supposed to get under U.S. law. Over the past 30 years, there have been eight petitions for federal recognition. They've all been denied. In the eyes of the federal government, 
the Ohlone people don't exist. If you're an American Indian, you have to prove beyond a doubt that you have been holding down a tribal government since 1900, that you have a tribal role system, that you have all of these things intact when, in fact, you were running for your lives, when, in fact, you were in hiding. Remember how the state of California paid people to kill Indians? During that era, many Ohlone people retreated to small communities near Sunol or in the Livermore Valley. Some, like Karina's ancestors, pretended to be Mexican and worked on ranches. The idea that it would have been possible to continuously maintain an organized tribe under these conditions is preposterous. But that's what the Bureau of Indian Affairs currently demands. In the early 1900s, there actually was one group of Ohlone people who did get federal recognition, the Verona Band of Alameda County. But the way they lost that status is both totally insane and at the same time perfectly emblematic of the way Native people have been getting shafted for centuries. Until 1924, the Verona Band, which most of us from the East Bay come from, was a group that was a sovereign nation. There was government-to-government relationships. The Bureau of Indian Affairs at the time, and those are the folks that are in charge of particular areas of the country and talks back to Washington, D.C. D.C. basically asked the guy that was in charge, his name was Dorrington, how much land was needed or how much money was needed to purchase land for the homeless people in the Bay Area, uh, homeless Indians, and he didn't answer. That Dorrington guy was Lafayette A. Dorrington. He was the BIA's California commissioner. I found out later on through research that he was an alcoholic. And basically, Washington, D.C. sent a telegram because he refused to answer and said if he did not answer, that they were going to ask him to come back to D.C. to explain why he wasn't answering. So in a quick note to D.C. to cover his own ass... He said, uh, for all intensive purposes, um, there aren't uh, that many people here. Therefore, no money is needed to purchase land for the homeless population. And at that time, conversation stopped. Instead of getting money for land, the Verona and more than 100 other bands of California native people got nothing. Actually, they got worse than nothing. They lost their federal recognition. It takes an act of Congress in order for a tribe to be unrecognized or to be deregulated, and that never happened. It was simply this guy's word saying that we weren't here anymore. This is why, up until pretty recently, textbooks and many anthropologists were saying that Ohlone people were extinct. My goal with this episode isn't to dwell on tragedy. But before getting into some of the history that is known, it's important to understand why so much history was lost. Because it was erased. I think that most indigenous cultures around the world, the reason that they survived is because the way they framed themselves and that they weren't a part are separate from 
but they were a part of their landscape. And that we truly believe that is our responsibility to take care of the places that we were put in. And so we become a part of that whole ecosystem. I don't want to overly romanticize life in the pre-colonization East Bay, but it does sound pretty good. For example, it was relatively peaceful. In other parts of the world, scientists find a lot of evidence of fighting among indigenous people. You know, they dig up weapons and shields or find out through oral histories that battles or even enslavement among different tribes were common practices. There was certainly violence among the Ohlone, but for the most part, everything suggests that warfare was not a big part of this culture. Their weapons seem clearly designed for hunting animals. And speaking of animals, there used to be tons of them around here. Lots of other stuff to eat, too. Looking back thousands of years, there's zero evidence for the Ohlone ever suffering from a famine. Unlike other cultures that had to chase herds over great distances or tribes that faced starvation during the lean winter months if there was a bad harvest season, the Ohlone were basically surrounded by a giant all-you-can-eat buffet. The food was plentiful here. There's small ecosystems all over the Bay Area, right? We ate lots of shellfish, and it was plentiful, and nothing was polluted. We could pull fish out of the streams. Salmon ran through here all the time, up our creeks and our rivers and our in the bay, right? Four times a year, there was salmon runs. People wrote down when they were chasing my ancestors up to the Carquina Strait that when they looked over, they was at one of the salmon runs, and you could practically walk across the backs of the salmon. Not in the mood for seafood? Venison was also on the menu. Plenty of deer and elk. Or perhaps some game or poultry? We ate, you know, rabbits and squirrels and all kinds of different kinds of birds were here. Some of the stuff that folks wrote when they were exploring here was that you could go to the bay and at any time, if the birds took off, it could almost blacken out the sky. So thousands of birds that lived here that you could eat. There were lots of vegetarian options, too. Flour made from mashed acorns was a staple food source. As you probably know, Oakland got its name because there were so many oak trees around here. And there were seasonal fruits and berries, seeds, grains, and herbs. Even certain kinds of roots and seaweed were part of the diet. But even though the Ohlone were hunters and gatherers, not farmers, they still had a big impact on the landscape. My ancestors didn't plant crops, but they took care of the land in a way that it made food come back. So traditional burning of the land created more seeds coming. It's important to point out that when the Europeans got here, this wasn't a virgin wilderness. The people who lived here transformed the land with controlled fires to encourage the habitats they wanted. And this system worked for thousands of years. No pollution, no toxic dead zones, no waste, 100% sustainable. The missionaries said that the Ohlone were less advanced because they didn't practice agriculture. But tons of agricultural societies have collapsed over the years, and they still do. The soil goes bad, or 
there's a drought or a plague of insects, and boom, your farm is done. According to the Spanish, the Ohlone were backwards, primitives, and they needed to be educated. But it seems like they had a pretty good thing going. It wouldn't take that long to get some food. And so you had the rest of the day to hang out and to learn about what was going on around your world and to have ceremony and to really have connections with your neighbors and your friends and your family. We have bought into this whole idea of paying rent to somebody when people lived for thousands of years for without paying anybody anything, that we all had a way to be on this land that was sustainable. Like I said before, I don't want to overly romanticize Ohlone culture. I think pretending like everything was perfect here back in the day is a different form of dehumanization. They were human beings. They got in fights and had grudges and got sick and everything else that happens to people. But they also achieved some pretty amazing things. Like, they had a society that functioned for thousands of years without the need for jails or police. And no, they didn't rely on the death penalty either. Here's how these so-called primitive people enforce their cultural values. Because there's not a police presence or there's not prisons doesn't mean that there's not uh, particular mores that folks f live by in their world, right? And so that if you know that there are particular things that you have to do, that's bought in by the entire tribe. Everybody believes that. So um, say a child is acting up. And the one thing that kids hate the most is if you ignore them. If you're throwing a tantrum, you don't ignore them. But not just the mom and not just the dad, but everybody in the tribe ignores them. That child will stop doing that really quick because they want that connection with the people that they love. And they'll understand that that's not something that they're supposed to do. And so be over many generations, you learn that those aren't things that we do. We don't we don't take food from other people that we're not supposed to. We don't take people's things that we're not supposed to. We don't touch things that are sacred. And because there's enough food and enough, uh, enough of everything, then what do people need to take that's not theirs? You know? So you don't think about stealing in that kind of way. Stealing isn't the only kind of crime, of course. There were people who refused to abide by the rules for whatever reason. And there were ways of dealing with them, too. There are stories about people that either hurt women or hurt children, and they were basically banned. And what does that mean? If you're a tribal group of people that live together and depend on one another for everything, if you're set off by yourself and you're wandering around and you go into another tribe and they're saying, where's your people? And they figure out, well, your people banished you. Then that means that you did something really horrible. And so they're not going to take you in. So imagine being banished from everybody in the world, because that's basically what it is. You're alone for the rest of your life. And so that is a really difficult. That's worse than being in prison. Folks get the message really quickly that you kind of stand in, stay in line and that this is the way that we live our lives and that this is the way that we pray together and this is the way we eat together and this way we hunt together and gather together and take care of one another. Another thing worth mentioning is that there was hierarchy in Ohlone culture, but Karina told me that we shouldn't think of the leaders 
who could be a man or a woman, as like kings or mayors. It was more like a chief diplomat and logistics coordinator type of role. For example, they were supposed to maintain good relationships with other villages because there was intermarriage between different groups. And trading was important, too. When traders came, there were all kinds of protocols that had to be followed. Feasting, dancing, having enough good stuff to trade with. You know, that kind of thing. That whole thing is for the head man or the head woman would be that responsibility to make sure that over the time, you know, if there's gambling going on, there's different stuff, that they would collect these gifts that they would hold on to, not to hoard them, but to give them away. That they would be sure to say that, the runners of the people that were taking care of them at the beginning of the territory, somebody would be sent back so that they knew everybody needs to start making food. We're going to get ready for them to come. We're going to have this dance when they walk into the village. All of that stuff has to be prepared. So that was the head person's job in order to make that happen. Even though there was social hierarchy, inequality never got out of control. Here's how Karina sums up the Ohlone people's attitude about wealth. The richest person gives everything away. If you had some jewelry made out of rare shells, or an obsidian blade, or a fur cape, it wasn't cool just to hoard that stuff. To earn respect, you had to let it go. And there are two ways that this taboo against wealth accumulation was instilled. First, elders passed down these values to the youngsters. When you're a child and you learn, say, to basket weave or you learn to bead something or you learn to create a shawl, that first thing that you make that you're so proud of, you have to give it away. So it teaches you that you don't hold on to stuff. There was one other tradition that really drove this lesson home. When you died, everything that you owned was buried or burned with you. So you create these beautiful things. They have life, their own life to them. But when they're given to somebody else, if that person dies and it's still in their possession, those things don't get given away. Those things are gone with them to, when they travel with them within their spirit. One of the reasons we know that possessions were buried with the dead is because of shell mounds. Shell mounds are always the burial sites of our ancestors. And in the Bay Area at one time, there were over 425 of them, and they ring the entire Bay Area. And what we know about shell mounds is that they're always on fresh water, where fresh water meets salt water. So they're also village sites. And then there would be houses that, you know, houses that people lived in. There would be sweat lodges. There would be arbor where people danced. There were all of these different things that were part of this. There's not much evidence left of the arbors or sweat lodges or homes where Ohlone people lived. All of these structures either decomposed back into the earth or were bulldozed long ago. The shell mounds are some of the last physical reminders of Native people's presence here. And they were more than just burial mounds. You could also, on top of them, have ceremony. You could light a fire. You could see across the bay where other people had fires lit. Um, so there was a way that you can communicate with each other. The biggest known shell mound was located in Emeryville, roughly where Bay Street Mall is now. It was about 60 feet tall and hundreds of feet across in diameter. 
the story of what happened to it exemplifies what happened to almost all of the shell mounds. When the shell mound was first taken down um, in the, what was it, early 1900s, they used the, the material for, from the shell mound to create the roads in Berkeley and Emeryville to pave them. So um, along with, you know, they took out whatever bones and stuff and they created the archaeological department, but I'm sure there was much more stuff um, inside of there that they didn't take out. And they created the, the they totally created the streets in Berkeley and Emeryville, Oakland with some of that stuff. The archaeological department Karina just mentioned is the one at Cal, but I'll get back to that later. The whole thing about paving the streets of the East Bay with the remains of Ohlone people, that was just the beginning of the desecration. For a while, there was a dance pavilion and an amusement park on what remained of the Shell Mound, but eventually it was leveled. For decades, factories sat on top of the sacred site, draining arsenic and other toxins into the ground. After the factory shut down, the city of Emeryville planned to rezone the site for commercial and residential development. But first, the highly contaminated area had to be cleaned up. Workers at the site frequently reported digging up bones, which were shipped to hazardous waste facilities for incineration. Many local indigenous groups opposed the construction of the Bay Street Mall, but the city council refused to change plans. Instead, they made a tiny gesture of appeasement. The street name Shell Mound in Ohlone Way, that is supposed to represent thousands of years of people living here without any kind of history about current, currently what's going on, what's there, where are those ancestors now? Do you take your family to Emeryville Mall and say, oh yeah, this is a representation of the people that lived here for thousands of years? And that's why I always say, those pyramids in Egypt and in Mexico, people can touch them and feel them and people can go and see them. Stonehenge folks can go see, right? You don't get to see anything here in the Bay Area, but buildings built over my ancestors. And so at some place we have to figure out, how do we do that? How do we make room you know, for that. In the early 1900s, an archaeologist at Berkeley named Nels Nelson realized that shell mounds were all being wiped out. He rushed around the Bay Area to map them before they were destroyed. Out of the 425 shell mounds that Nelson identified, there's barely a visible trace left. But Nelson's map still exists. And nearly a century after it was created, Karina and her friend Janella LaRose used this map to create a walking tour. In 2005, Karina and Janella's group, which they call Indian People Organizing for Change, led the first shell mound walk around the bay. The first of many. We started up at Segorate, which is up at the Carquina Strait. 
And we walked down to San Jose and up the other side to San Francisco and across the Golden Gate Bridge. And we walked 18 miles a day, and each day we stopped at different shell mounds. And every time we stopped to pray with those ancestors, they were under buildings or roads or railroad tracks or sh shopping centers or uh, parking lots, uh, schools, different things, bars. But it didn't make those places any less sacred because we knew where they were. Ohlone people have no permanent ceremonial site in the East Bay. Once a year, they'll rent space from the East Bay Regional Park District for a gathering. Usually, though, they've got to settle for parking lots. The battle over the West Berkeley Shell Mound site is an opportunity to change this. Opponents of the apartment development have offered an alternative. This plan envisions a kind of memorial park with a recreated shell mound, native plants, and a ceremonial arbor. If the public comments at a recent Berkeley zoning board meeting are any indication, this plan might just have a chance. This is the oldest human history in the entire region. I'm deeply troubled about the potential desecration of this very, very sacred shell mound site. I don't want to see buildings on top of bodies. I don't think that we should build this building here. When an individual is disrupted and unearthed, the spirit of that individual is wandering. Once destroyed, we will have permanently lost this opportunity. Even if my ancestors couldn't, we can see what the West Berkeley Shellmound site was and that it needs our respect and protection. As a person of faith, I want to voice my opposition to this development. Not just indigenous people go down there to pray. You know, there's folks from my community who go down there to pray to honor the indigenous ancestors. This is the perfect opportunity to build a memorial park. When we see it, it's a parking lot when most of us see these things. But for us, it's a sacred place. It's a place where our ancestors are buried. We have a history of colonization, and this is the time that I feel we're called to to reevaluate what, what path we want to take. If I had a way of dealing with this particular site and I was able to dream that the city of Berkeley could have somehow help to purchase this land or we could create a park together that would not only create an open space but also it would talk about the history of not only the past Ohlone but the Ohlone people that are still here. so much for listening to East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. For this episode, I want to thank Karina Gould and everybody involved with Indian People Organizing for Change. Another big thank you goes out to Michelle Grace Steinberg, who made the amazing documentary Beyond Recognition. If you want to learn more about Ohlone people and battles over sacred sites, see this film. I also want to mention that in addition to iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, you can now subscribe to this show on Google Play. You can also follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where I post photos related to each and every episode, as well as news about upcoming events and other cool local history stuff. There are links to all those social media pages at eastbayyesterday.com. And please, if you like this show, spread the word. 
big shout out to the folks who are already doing this. People like Shantamar Bucci, Robert Lou Trujillo, Gene Anderson, and Nick Rahim. I see what you're doing, and I really, really appreciate it. Seriously, if you think today's episode was a story that deserves to be heard, the only way that it's going to reach people is if you, the listener, tell people about it. My marketing budget is zero dollars. Okay, thanks. Music for this episode was provided by Lee Rosevere. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.